The Ghost of Dunstanborough Castle, Laying a Ghost at Etherley, and Part 1 of The Haunting of Jedburgh Castle Jail and Museum. Welcome to Episode 14 of a Northern Counties Paranormal Podcast, hosted by Within the Boggart Wood. Remnants of Dunstanborough Castle are some of the most evocative ruins on the Northumberland coast. It's a good mile walk from nearby Craster, famous for its kippers, to the site of what was once the county's biggest castle. The castle was built in the early half of the 14th century and saw a lot of military activity during the War of the Roses when it was besieged with cannon fire at least five times. What was left of the castle at the end of the war would have been too expensive to restore so it fell into a state of decay. As is to be expected, the rooms are said to be haunted by a number of ghosts. The most famous is the Dunstanborough Grey Lady, who has been seen wandering around inside the castle grounds on numerous occasions, usually accompanied by a blast of chilling air, though how you can tell the difference with the blustery direct North Sea winds, who knows. This unfortunate soul is said to be Margaret of Anjou, wife of King Henry VI, a headstrong woman who bemoaned her imposed exile in Scotland. Dunstanborough's second ghost is said to be that of the castle's builder, Thomas, Earl of Lancaster, who was executed for treason in 1322 on the orders of King Edward II, whom he'd managed to annoy. Thomas's spectre carries its head, which bears a look of intense agony and horror, perhaps not surprising because it took 11 strokes of the executioner's blade to part it from Thomas's shoulders. The third story has its origins in myth rather than history. According to the story, a young knight by the name of Sir Guy also known as the Seeker, took shelter in the castle during a storm. He was approached by a wizard who told him that a beautiful young maiden needed to be rescued from the depths of the castle. The wizard led him into the great hall and instructed him to choose between a sword and a horn. Whichever he chose would be the instrument of the maiden's release. Already armed with a keen-bladed sword, the knight picked the horn and blew it. At that point, the legend says, Sir Guy was confronted by a hundred armed warriors in white, whereupon he dropped the horn in shock and abruptly found himself outside the castle with no way back in. There are numerous versions of this story, sometimes it is King Arthur and his knights who are woken from their slumber by the horn, or a great treasure is bestowed on Sir Guy. However, each story ends the same way, with the forlorn knight continuing after death to search for his prize. Tales of his tormented shouts and cries are still said to be heard at the stroke of midnight. This episode's From the Archive section comes from the Darlington and Stockton Times Ripon and Richmond Chronicle, dated Saturday 29th of May 1880, and is entitled Laying a Ghost at Etherley. For some months the credulous portion of the inhabitants of Toft Hill and Etherley have been thrown into a state of perturbation by the midnight peregrinations of a ghost, whose favourite haunt appears to have been the churchyard. The visitant usually appeared in a white sheet or nightshirt, and none but the bravest have dared to disturb its nocturnal rambles. A few nights back, however, after pretty nearly frightening a married couple out of their wits as they passed the churchyard, the ghost encountered a sturdy guardian of the peace, who, with a bold front, truncheon in hand, demanded its business, in thus visiting the glimpses of the moon, whereupon the would-be ghost took to its heels, closely followed by the officer, over the walls and through the gardens and shrubberies of Etherley Lodge and was eventually run to ground at Toft Hill. 
The ghost turned out to be a miner named Thomas Fawcett, who had nothing on but his nightshirt. He refused to speak on being seized, and saying that he was in the worst for drink, the valiant officer, a PC Lowe's, summoned him before the Auckland magistrates on Monday, when he was presumed fined seven shillings, six pence and costs. Thus the ghost is presumed to have been laid. Jedburgh Castle Jail and Museum is an early 19th century restored jail, built on the grounds of a medieval castle, the site of which gave the jail its name. The museum is run by registered charity Live Borders, with a four-star attraction aiming to show what life was like in the 1820s Scottish Borders prison. At the time of publishing this podcast episode, the museum is open 10am to 4pm Monday to Saturday, then 10am to 3pm Sundays. Jedburgh Castle Jail is located at Castlegate in Jedburgh in the Scottish Borders. The site originally held Jedburgh's medieval castle. The fortification was originally described as a protected peel tower with two larger fortified towers. In October 1346, King David II of Scotland led a Scottish invasion into northern England at the head of a 12,000-man force. The army was halted at Durham by Lord Ralph Neville, with King David captured and the army routed. From then, Jedburgh Castle fell into English hands. Then in 1409, the castle was demolished by the Scottish to prevent the site's strategic use by the English. The castle ruin became known as Castle Hill by the 18th century, with John Ainsley's map Jedburgh and its environs published in 1780, noting that the hill was also the site of the Jedburgh Gallows. Between 1820-23, plans were drawn up by architect Archibald Elliot for the construction of a new jail for Jedburgh, the town having essentially outgrown the old jail. The first stage was the clearance of the gallows and the remains of the castle. The work was undertaken by Mr Gillespie, builder. The prison was built using the John Howard system, aimed at reforming prisoners as well as providing adequate punishment while also allowing good living conditions. The first map of the new prison is likely depicted on John Wood's map, dating to 1823. It was a model jail with a central jailer's house, with rectangular cell blocks to the south, east and west. The cell blocks were segregated depending on their occupants, with the western of the three blocks holding male debtors and female prisoners, the southern being a block for male prisoners, and the eastern the house of correction or bridewell. The site was set out in a D-shaped plan with a double-walled layout. On the 29th of October 1823, the first of three executions took place from within the Jedburgh Jail inmate population. Robert Scott had been tried on the 16th of September and found guilty of murder. After his execution, his remains were sent to Dr Munro of Edinburgh for dissection. The second took place on the 19th of October 1831, when Thomas James Rogers was executed for the murder of Neil McKernan after being tried on the 28th of September for murder. Despite this, three years later in 1834, Parish Minister John Purves inspected the prison and concluded there was no more comfortable place of confinement in Scotland. However, five years later the Prisons Act of 1839 came into being, which moved drastically away from the Howard system, promoting the isolation of prisoners in separate cells and a drastic increase in harsher discipline. Architect Thomas Brown brought Jedburgh into line with the Act in 1847, with the day rooms repartitioned and arcades closed on the ground floor of the debtors and women's block, and a new lean-to added to the west side of the building. A square chimney tower was added to the male block, and a further lean-to added to that building. The bridewell, it is noted, was least altered due to its appropriate layout. From that point on, Jedburgh Jail got a reputation across the borders for its brutality. 
According to Scottish indexes, between 1843 and 1869, the most common cause of imprisonment was assault, accounting for 21.9% of inmates, then theft at 16.9%, and then poaching at 14.5%. Children as young as nine years old were also committed to Jedbra, with prison records showing kids such as Andrew Aitchison, 12 years old, jailed in 1840, Andrew Blythe, 9 years old, jailed in 1850, Jane Anderson, 11 years old, jailed in 1851, Janet Aitken, 10 years old, jailed in 1856, and Robert Borthwick, 9 years old, jailed in 1863. In 1849, the third and last public execution took place in Jedburgh, with John Wilson executed on the 25th of October. Wilson was one of two railway labourers tried on the 4th of October for the murder of William Lauder at St Boswell's Fair. The hanging took place on a scaffold constructed in front of the town council house, with a crowd numbering around 2,000 onlookers. By 1880, the building itself failed to meet the regulations of the time. A report dated to 1880 stated that the cells were too small, damp throughout with unsatisfactory heating, ventilation, storage and bathing facilities, the latter specifically referencing the male prison population. It was also noted that there were no sewerage systems in place, nor such matter had to be carried out in buckets and disposed of in the garden. The jail closed on the 31st of May 1886, with the prisoners being transferred to better facilities in Edinburgh. In 1890, the jail was sold to the borough, who let out the jailer's house until 1961. It was then decided to open the building to the public, with Aitken and Turnbull, Edinburgh-based architects, led by architect F.T. Scott restoring the warden's block in 1969, with the same team then working on the Bridewell in 1981, restoring the building to the best of their ability to the 1823 layout. Now, turning from history to the paranormal, finding stories in antiquity relating to the jail has proven difficult. There are ghost stories relating to the town, however. For example, an article in the Jedburgh Gazette in 1887 reads thus. The people of Jedburgh, and especially of the Cannon Gate, have this week enjoyed the cantrips of a real ghost, which is not to be explained away or got rid of either by the enlightenment or the indifference of the 19th century, for it has already defied the ingenuity and exertions of clergymen, joiners, constables and common people with all the aids the century's enlightenment could lend them. The mysterious manifestation began in a house in Canongate on Friday week, precisely the day on which was buried an infant that had died suddenly in the house below. Quite naturally, or rather quite supernaturally, the two events were associated in the minds of the people, and a conjectural explanation of the existence of the ghost was found. The manner in which the ghost made its presence known was this. A mournful sound was heard, ascending apparently from under the floor of the house. This would slightly vary in tone and finish with a musical cadence. At times the sound was like the sighing of the sad autumn winds, and again it resembled the softest notes of a melodeon. At intervals, night and day, these sounds were heard, and many a hard-headed man can testify to the fact, for he has heard them. As may be well understood, the people living in the house were in consternation, and called in advisers, spiritual and otherwise. It is stated that the services of no less than three clergymen were obtained, but they were unable to make any impression on the ghost. The police too were powerless, which is not surprising, as this form of disturbance is beyond the limits of their department. On Tuesday, a joiner who had been very prudently called in suggested that part of the flooring should be lifted so that they might either catch the ghost or let it escape. This was agreed to and he lifted two boards from the place from which the noise usually proceeded. Nothing could be said about the flooring, 
But there is this to be said about the efficacy of the joiner's expedient, that during the time he was present, the ghost ceased from troubling, and we understand that it has only been heard once since the floor was lifted. For some evenings, while the ghost was in its vigour, considerable crowds of people collected in the cannon gate and revelled in the sensation. Some other stories from Jedburgh have a more simple explanation, such as the article in the East Aberdeenshire Advisor on the 5th of February 1869. A ghost which has haunted Jedburgh for a few nights past was captured on Friday evening by two policemen. The ghost was found to be two young men, one of which stood on the shoulders of the other. A white sheet was thrown over both, and the figure they presented was a rather formidable-looking object to meet on a dark road at night. Interestingly, an article appeared in the Jedburgh Gazette on the 3rd of August 1928, suggesting that the jail itself was not actually haunted. The article was titled, To Buy or Not To Buy. Wanted, a nice tame little castle, quietness essential, non-possessing ghosts or other unnatural phenomena need apply, give age, wage and credentials. Look out for this advertisement in next week's Gazette. If it does not appear, you will know the reason, that Jedburgh Castle has been a successful applicant. Inquiries have been made in the past by a member of the fair sex as to whom she might buy Jedburgh Castle from. One local gentleman to whom she offered a priceless sum laughed at the idea and was reported to the authorities. Finally going to the source of all information, she came away satisfied and bought a guide. So the question still stands, when did the first story of ghosts at the jail appear? The first online mention of paranormal activity at the jail seems to be in the year 2005, when several later reports cite a ghost investigation took place where the investigators fled, having been essentially attacked by poltergeist activity. These later reports state that the incident appeared in the national press, though that 18-year-old press appearance at the moment is completely evading my attempt to find it, with it not showing up in any online searches or newspaper archives. After this incident, the first report I could find, which incidentally appears to be the first to mention the 2005 investigation, was in May 2008 when the Ghost Club investigated the jail. I did inquire with the Ghost Club to see if they had an investigation archive so I could find the elusive 2005 reference but barring an initial response about looking into it, there's been no further reply. Next in was TV show Most Haunted, also in 2008. So without any reports prior to 2005 or 2008, what activity has been reported at the jail? I've done five field investigations at the jail myself since 2014, each time as a guest of Chris and Annette Fox of Dead Zone Paranormal Adventures, so I've had time to look into a number of the alleged phenomena. Number one, scratches. There have been multiple reports of visitors and or investigators finding inexplicable scratches on their bodies after visiting or investigating the jail. However, due to the nature of the building, it would not be unexpected for a visitor to potentially scratch themselves on rough or protruding surfaces and not notice at the time, especially on arms and areas such as the spiral staircase and the cell blocks. Number 2. Mists and Orbs Despite years of research and even statements by digital camera manufacturers explaining how orbs are created through the photography process, many investigation groups still cling to the theory that orbs are evidence of paranormal activity. They're the lazy approach to quick and easy evidence, and as such, a number have been reported over the years at the jail. Now, bearing in mind that the cells especially are somewhat dusty, multiple airborne particles are visible to the naked eye in a strong torch beam, and they get cold at night, often leading to the misting of investigators' breath or other gas-escaping bodily functions. 
Paranormal mists and orbs at the jail can easily be explained by simple environmental factors and airborne particles. Number 3. The Phantom Bagpiper A phantom bagpiper has been seen and heard on the castle walls a number of times by visitors and investigators, and was sighted certainly as early as the Ghost Club's visit in 2008. Dead Zone Paranormal Adventures initially thought they had caught an image of the piper on camera on an early visit to the site. However, Chris Fox, team founder, was able to debunk it as pareidolia formed by a bird. Number 4. Visible Apparitions and Photographic Anomalies The Ghost Club's 2008 report mentions a number of apparitions having been witnessed at the jail, as well as the piper noted above. Several investigation groups claim that the spirit of a former prisoner, Edwin MacArthur, executed on the site in 1855 haunts the jail, specifically the mail block, and treats visitors and investigators to his own brand of poltergeist activity. Now we've already gone through the history and we know no one was executed in 1855 at Dreadborough. Examination of the prison records also show no inmate by the name of Edwin MacArthur, and census records fail to list anyone of that name in the borders. So basically, MacArthur is the figment of a paranormal investigator or spiritual medium's imagination produced during a ghost hunt at the jail. The name was written online in the group's website and the name entered local legend. So if you're on an investigation at the jail with a group and someone mentions sensing Edwin MacArthur, you know instantly that they've just researched the alleged activity at the site beforehand. In the Border Telegraph, April 2019, an article described the best ever photo of a ghost, apparently snapped during a failed selfie attempt at the jail. However, the blurry image is clearly just one of the cut-out figures that lie within the jail, and the results of poor reporting. Again in the Border Telegraph, six months later, the image of what was described in the media as a hooded woman appeared alongside an article in the chat It's Fate magazine. The photograph had actually been taken during the Dead Zone Paranormal Adventures 24-hour investigation in October 2019 by one of the guest investigators, and was intriguing as the image was only visible on that one investigator's camcorder, while two others filmed the same area with no results. It wasn't until 2020 when the original photographer sent Dead Zone Paranormal Adventures a copy of the unzoomed image, as well as two others in the sequence. Examination showed an infrared reflection which appears to have caused the anomaly, the anomaly changes form slightly as the camera moves, and lens flare can clearly be seen across the door. Of interest is a further anomaly in the window, suggesting that the infrared of the camera night vision was essentially interacting with shiny surfaces, as in the window and the door, with the lens of the camera forming the shapes and pareidolia then fills in the rest. This analysis was done by myself and Chris from Dead Zone, though the original photographer disagrees with the explanation. Number 5. Stones and other objects being thrown at people. There are numerous references online to the 2005 investigation group having experienced poltergeist activity. As previously mentioned, I've not been able to track this account down, so so far the earliest record that suggests this activity appears to be Most Haunted's 2009 show. Number 6. Drain on battery operated equipment Numerous reports of investigators claiming battery drainage in mobile equipment have been reported. However, it is unknown whether this was just a result of cold temperatures, as it gets very cold in the jail. As the cold can have a draining effect on some battery types, with the charge returning when the battery warms up. Number 7. The sound of door slamming shut. The sound of cell door slamming shut when the doors don't actually move has been reported by a number of visiting investigation teams. A few investigators have debunked the phenomenon, reporting that the sound appears to be caused by the flagpole on top of the jailer's block. In a breeze, the rope cracks against the pole creating a metallic clang that echoes across the site. 
However, having heard this sound on a number of occasions now, I can say that the flagpole crack bears no resemblance to the sound of the doors opening. There is also the occasional but repeating report of doors slamming shut on investigators within the cell blocks. The weight of the doors would make it incredibly unlikely that this would be caused by airflow, and isn't something I've seen myself. Number 8. Audio Anomalies Inexplicable voices, heavy breathing, disembodied footsteps and whistling sounds have been heard, reported at least as far back as 2008. The sounds of the cell doors creaking open or shut have also been heard, and in fact on the 9th of April 2022, such a creak was caught on an audio recording session in the male prison block. And number 9. The Disappearing Ouija In 2019, as previously noted, Dead Zone Paranormal Adventures undertook a 24-hour investigation of the site, with guests from another northeast group also present, who set up an extensive CCTV system. A visual anomaly appeared on the guest group's CCTV upon playback during the night, suggesting that an Ouija board, which had been set as a trigger object, had quite literally disappeared and reappeared in front of the camera. However, the raw footage was not made available to Dead Zone, and the phenomenon also coincided with a trap camera Chris had set to cover the board, having had its memory card wiped. So the true nature of the anomaly cannot be investigated further, other than to repeat the experiment. So, you've probably noticed that this podcast entry is named Jedbra Jail Part 1. Part 2 will be in the next episode, after I've been on another investigation at the jail this Saturday, the 19th of August 2023. I'll be attempting to put together audio from the investigation for the podcast, as well as attempting to film some content for the YouTube channel, which is looking very empty at the moment, and film some extra Patreon supporter content. So without further ado, I shall say bye for now and hope you enjoy this episode. Until next time, have a good week and stay safe.